Welcome everybody to the 18th episode of Chelsea Against the World, the podcast that brings together an American and an Englishman to discuss all things Chelsea Football Club. I'm your host, Manny. And I'm your host, Simon. Manny, what's going on? Nothing much, man. Just got back in town. I was on a pretty long break. I think the last time I talked to you, I was in New York for the 4th of July, and I made my way to Pensacola this past weekend to hang out with some friends and is Watch that in Florida? It. Yeah, it's in Florida, yes, yes. It's actually the armpit of Florida. It's a little panhandle <laughs> that comes across that people call the armpit of Florida, but I love it. It's a What great... is the arsehole of Florida? <laughs> that would be Miami. <laughs> <laughs> and I was there a couple months ago. Yeah. Just... <laughs> That's where I got COVID, actually. Okay. <laughs> no. I mean, it's fitting, right? Yeah, I have no idea you can get transmitted that way, but yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it was uh, it was cool. It was, we went, I went down for an air show. Have you heard of the Blue Angels? No, I think it's quite similar to the Red Arrows in Britain, though. Is, is it Blue Angels? Are they like a stunt? Yeah. I mean, this is a guess. Is it a stunt air show with blue planes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. So it's part of the Navy, and they have an Air Force base down there called the Eglin Air Force Base. And so the Blue Angels have been around for you know years, and they travel around for different air shows around the country, and they do really, really cool formations. It's like a diamond formation of four planes. They're literally like feet away from each other. They'll have like a formation of five or six airplanes that come by. They'll buzz into these flybys around the beach and stuff like that. And so the shows are like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and the main show's on Saturday. But I have a really good friend there, and we got on their boat, and we just kind of take the boat around into the bay and just sit there and just drop anchor and drink and watch the air show. And there's always some other acts like the Red Bull airplane and helicopter there. And then there's this this airplane that actually starts off the show for the Blue Angels called Fat Albert. (laughs) That's the name of the airplane. (laughs) It's like this huge, I think it's like a C-130 airplane that just comes across and buzzes the people in the crowd on the beach. And then the angels come out of nowhere. And it's like, it's very loud. It's very, very loud. It's like F-18. Yeah, Hornets, like super engines, just like so, so loud. But it was a blast. It was very, very cool. And I saw the show three times, like Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And it was... It was kind of rainy one of the days, but it was still pretty, pretty impressive. But how was your weekend? Yeah, all good, man. I Going back to your thing about air shows, it reminds me of my favorite ever Simpsons quote, where um, the family go to an air show near Springfield, I think it is, and the announcer goes, and now for the finale, it's the pride of the U.S. Air Force, the British-made Harriet jet. <laughs> It's just one of my great, one of the great, one of the many great Simpsons quotes. Do you know I actually got to see a Harrier jet take off growing up? Like it was one of the coolest experiences ever. Nick, you know they have like the vertical takeoff, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. um, It was incredible. It was also very loud. Yeah, yeah. I can't, I can't deal with that kind of stuff. Yeah, it was at a military base um, in uh, in Memphis. It was actually Millington, north of Memphis, and. When I was young, I was like infatuated with airplanes. My dad took me to this air show. We got to see some really cool things like an F-117 Nighthawk, which is like that first stealth fighter that dropped bombs in Baghdad in 91 or 92. Um, And that was like one of the first stealth um, airplanes out. That was was really, really cool. It was a cool experience. But yeah, um, awesome times. Yeah, I, I I can't handle the noise. Really, I, I, that, that's that's kind of weird. You being a DJ, I mean, you probably yeah. have the headphones on, <laughs> and also the loudest person <laughs> in the world. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to. Say yeah, that it's part. a strange one. I um, yeah, I, I can't deal with it. I'd be absolutely useless in a war. Really useless in a war. <laughs> hey, Simon, <laughs> throw the <laughs> I'd be grenade sitting in the corner with my earplugs <laughs> on. What? <laughs> What's going on? Throw the grenade. What? <laughs> Sorry, I got my headphones on. I don't know what my granny is. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, yeah something that I would never do. But I'm glad you had a good time. My weekend was it's okay, Simon. I'll be in the trench with you. I'll Thank protect you. you. Thank you. Give me my head, passing my headphones. That's right, exactly right. Um, my weekend was quite intense for different reasons. Actually, I just had, 
I've got back into my uh, summer addiction of watching Test Match Cricket again. And I think we mentioned earlier, I had pretty much a nervous breakdown on Sunday morning because I've been up at 5am over the weekends watching Universal Australia because I just, uh, there's nothing else like it in the world. I love football more than anything, but Test Match Cricket, when England play Australia is like a drug. It's like, you can't look away from it, but it's not enjoyable. It's crazy. It's just... The last day of the, the, the... So if anyone who doesn't understand what Test Match Cricket is, Test Match Cricket is five days of cricket, essentially. And it's it sounds dull, but it really isn't. It's like every session of the, of the day, something intense happens that sways it one way or another. And it's like a game within a game. And it's just the most incredible strategy. And like the England cricket team has changed their approach to make it more exciting for neutrals. And that's what's happened. And... On Sunday morning, I got up at 5.30 to watch the last day. And I don't know how I didn't wake up the entire neighbourhood with my screaming. <laughs> because I was losing my mind all the way through. And thankfully, England won and to keep the series alive. But yeah, I just it's it's really good copium for me while, while football season's not on. So yeah, I'd, if anyone's never watched it, I'm, I'm quite happy to talk you through it. If you want to watch it with me, it's just the best thing in the world. So yeah, I've... Slower weekend, not so many air shows, but equally weird noises, probably. A little Harrier jet coming through Wedgwood, Houston, yeah, yeah. 6 a.m. Just Simon screaming over the cricket. Right. Um, um, so we're back with Chelsea today. That's interesting because I, a lot of you guys know this. I, I did grow up watching some cricket. My dad was a big cricket enthusiast, but it was more one-day internationals. And then you know, 2020 kind of came up about last 20, 30 years, and that has been sort of like the you know, four hour cricket match. That's good for people like me who have really bad ADD, you know? And so if you sit, have me sit and watch a five day test match, it'll probably take, you know, some beverages and stuff yeah. like that. You know, well, to- I think that's one of the reasons why the crowd is so good. <laughs> exactly. Right. But I, I think I would, I would love to learn. And, and every, everybody I talk to is a cricket enthusiast say that's like the best form of cricket is test day match. Honestly, I, I love football more than everything. Like football is my number one passion really. But there's something about the test match cricket when there's high stakes. England versus Australia is like a unique rivalry, very unique rivalry. We all get along, but deep down we don't really like each other. And that really, like even on the playing side, like they all play together in the the IPL and all around the world. But when it's England versus Australia, they really there's real bad blood between them. So let me ask you a question: like yeah. if you if you take all sports, you know, in, in the same category, and as a national side. You personally, being an England fan, who's your biggest rival in in what sport? Interesting. In cricket, it's definitely Australia. But would that be like the number one? Like I think so. Over everything. Over everything. Everything. Yeah, I think in football it changes. Um, I think there's a lot of rivalry between the different UK teams in all the sports, but in in the ones that count, England is so much better than all the others, so it doesn't really count. Australia, England, Australia. There's something unique about it, like. Because I think England, people in England and Australia are very similar, deep down. Like, obviously there's the historical similarities in yeah. terms of us using it as a convict colony. Um, but I think the competitive nature of it, it's like, it's something that I can't really explain to people who aren't from there. It's like, you just, if you meet, if an English person meets an Australian, no matter where they are, it strikes up this competitive, competitive conversation that's very, very, very unique. And there's something about Ashes cricket. 
that brings it out more than anything else. Even like in football, rugby or anything like that. There's something about the cricket that just brings out the worst and the best of everybody. Um, in football, for me, oh, it's a, tr- a tricky one. It has to be the French or the Italians. Not the Germans. No, I like the Germans. I do. I think it all... St- <laughs> there's obviously there's historical weirdness that goes on and the, the, the things that go outside of sports which I have no time for whatsoever. It's For me, it's based upon... It's like an Arsenal rivalry. I hate them because of the, the way that they are as a sports team. There's something about Italian football that rubs me the wrong way. I hate it. I hate watching Serie A. I think it's awful to watch. And their national team epitomises it. Um, and the French is just competitive because they're so good. And yeah. I just want to be the French. I think from the American perspective, I think for us, if you take any sport, I think we're pretty dominant in basketball and... Um, even in women's um, football slash soccer, I think we're pretty dominant in that. I think for me, it'd be in the men's side um, in soccer, and it'd probably be against Mexico. It's yeah. a fierce rivalry. I mean, you've seen some of the games, red cards galore, trash thrown on the fields. It's just a very, very bitter, intense rivalry. You know, actually, I think the way the way England fans behave outside the stadium is pretty appalling, and it usually is. Most European fans are like that as well, but I've never seen anything like that US-Mexico rivalry in the stadium with the players where it was the atmosphere was toxic really really toxic and like I was a little bit anxious about what was actually happening and what would spill over into the crowd and I think the officiating doesn't help no the officiating whoever decides those officials you need some seriously strong officials in those games and they had a weak ass official in that last US Mexico game. I don't watch all of them, but yeah, it was. You need someone who's going to control the emotion of the game because it spills out into the stadium. And yeah, it's it's a really unique rivalry, actually. Yeah, but let's uh, digress. Let's get into Chelsea. So it's been about a couple of weeks for Pochettino's reign in one, Chelsea. One week in training. I yeah, think. I think yeah, one week in training, a couple of days maybe added to that yeah. in terms of a lot of the marketing and stuff like that. Uh, but reports have come out saying that even though it's only been one week, it's been pretty intense. It's probably one of the most intense training sessions they've had, even going back to last year in their Tuchel in, in the summer. And I think that's important. I think that's good. And it seems like the players are up for it as well. Uh, and it's nice to hear those reports. Yeah, I think I'm really pleased about it. Because just from a kind of psychological perspective, if he started out soft and then said to them, right now we're going to go hard... I feel it's more difficult to do that. I think he's in a unique opportunity where the owners have clearly given him a lot of power to do what he needs to do. And he's sending a message to all the players who want to play for Chelsea. This is how hard you're going to have to work to get in my team. And it's easier to start from that hard level of training and pull back and to be like, okay, now we're going to go a bit softer on tactics and those kind of things. And I, from what I've heard, he's already separated the loan group as well. So he's called them the loan group. So it's players who are not going to be playing in the first team are training separately from the first team, which I am so happy about. And I mean, he's saying all the right things. Obviously, we'll see what happens. But I feel really encouraged by the way it started. It'll be interesting to see if we have any incomings by the time the team travels to the US next, next week and to see if... Maybe we can get the midfielder across the line in terms of, you know, um, signing uh, Moises Concedo from uh, Brighton. But we really haven't had much transfer talk in the last week and a half. Maybe the only one that's sort of confirmed is Pulisic 
going um, to your favorite league, Serie A. <laughs> and uh, we, we've, we've sort of harped a lot about Kai Havertz saga, Mason Mount saga, and I'll touch a little bit on the Pulisic um, saga as well. But I think from a Chelsea's perspective and from an American perspective, I think that, you know, I wish it would have worked out. What we saw from Pulisic and Project Restart was amazing, you know, in his link up with on previous podcasts we talked about with Giroud and Willian. And I wish that that would have sort of matriculated into you know, the new season. It just didn't. I think he was just hampered with injuries and also hampered by the fact that we had five different coaches, you know, that he, he worked under. Yeah, I think it's one of those transfers that I think everybody wins from it. And that I think that's an ideal situation, really. Like, he he clearly tried very hard for Chelsea and he did very well in spurts and... He did make a big contribution to that Champions League winning team. He scored the goal in the Bernabeu, set up Mount's winner at Stamford Bridge as well and played really, really well. Um, I think, yeah, there's a number of things that contributed to it not working as well as we wanted to, not just the injuries, but also some of the tactics the managers used. I think yeah. Tuchel basically made him into like auxiliary wing-back and that's not the best use of him. He was lethal going forward under Lampard on that first season at times and I just there's a vast array of contributions to, to why it didn't work and I I, I wish him the best of luck because I think he's quite a nice guy and, and obviously living in America as an Englishman I want him to do well because I want the US I want the, the, the game to grow in the US and I feel that he's a big contributing factor to that and I think AC Milan's a perfect fit, actually. That's like Chelsea's second team. You know, we have a lot of players that played for Chelsea now in Milan, not just Ru- not just Pulisic, but Giroud, uh, Loftus Cheek, Tamori. So it's a team that we can sort of root for in the Italian league. Um, I think the whole Pulisic saga, though, I think he did it right. He did it professional. He was not, you know, utilizing the media like Mount was, you know, for or against. And um, I'm, you know, sad for Americans. I think a lot of Americans were brought to Chelsea because of the signing yeah. of Christian Pulisic. I hope they stick around as well. I think, you know, the, the club is great in sort of um, embracing the new American fans that come in by doing a lot of these preseason tours in the U.S. last year and now this year. So I think it will still it will still help grow the sport, especially Chelsea in the U.S. as well. Um, but, yeah, best of luck to him, and, and I want to see him be successful, not just for uh, AC Milan, but also for the national team. Yeah, I think he will. I think in terms of his... A development, I think, is the right move. I, I would have, I don't think he would have. I think in the Premier League, it's too physical when he's too injury prone at the moment. I think that to get his career back on track, AC Milan's a good fit. Um, but best of luck to him. And I think I'm quite determined on this now that we move on from some of these players. And I, this would be my plea to some of our fans let's not talk about Mountain Havertz anymore. Generally, it's done. Like, it was messy. It's horrible. We can all have our regrets about it. It's Chelsea. It's not Mountain and Havertz FC. I think it's it's time to move on from some of these players. This is what a clear out looks like. It's going to be uncomfortable in places, but those players are not. They mean nothing to me now. I feel about them as I feel about other opposition players. While we talk about some of our future, our new first team uh, shirt or jersey, wherever you're from, was brought out today. What are your initial thoughts on it? I like it. I think first most, I like it. There's no sponsor on <laughs> yeah, the, on the know, front. Right? There was a lot of uh, pushback for like the hologram sort of gold logo that's on there, but I actually enjoy it. And I do like the fact that it is a 
quote-unquote retro shirt, you know, an ode to the 90s. But I think it looks clean. I think it looks really, really good. And I think Nike, for the first time, actually got all three kit- kits correct this year. I mean, I love the away kit. I love the third kit. Well, the leaks that we've seen. And I really do enjoy the training kits as well. Uh, but this one, I-, I really, really like it. Yeah, me too. Honestly, I think it's the best kit that we've released in years. I can't... I- all the way back to probably when the original version of this one came out. I, that's my favorite Chelsea shirt ever. Um, I think it makes a really good nod to the past. And it's ironic Nike has done a good job copying one of the old ones. That's <laughs> which right. was Umbro. And yeah, I'm really happy about it. I would, I would happily spend more money on shirts that didn't have a sponsor. Yeah, I agree. I could. And I, th- I think I think what they're going to probably do is they're going to allow us to pre-order these shirts, but then slap a sponsor logo on there for you know for money purposes, and yeah. that's fine. But and um, also, I think going back to the sponsor as well, I think people need to give the owners some real props on this one because they could have made a lot of money from that gambling crypto company stake. Yeah. I think it was, and the fan pushback they changed their minds because of it, which. I think is really admirable. They really listened to the, I think there were some real strong resistance, especially in the UK, because gambling is, it's a pretty hot topic at the moment in terms of people's addictions to it and the negative things surrounding it. And I think it was counter to a lot of the messaging that the Chelsea, Chelsea were trying to bring out. So I'm glad that they listened and I think people should respect them for that. Yeah. I think there's a lot of irony though, in in terms of, you know, the FA and especially the premier league and the fact that Chelsea wanted a long-term deal with Paramount plus and they weren't allowed to do that because Sky and BT or whoever, you know, the national broadcasting companies there in England did not want that happen because Paramount Plus is a huge, you know, American yeah. um, a streaming service. And and to me, that's just it's stupid, right? Like, you know, they, they want to pay the money. The deal was set up. And then but you allow these gambling companies who are awful and atrocious and lead people into ridiculous addictions and, you know, losing a lot of their net worth and going to these different sites. But that's OK. Yeah. Again, it's like a pure hypocrisy as well. And like, if you look at the, the the stadiums as well, literally every single sponsor is a gambling company. And yeah, I think it's just rank hypocrisy and the way that they treat it. We went back to this, our previous podcast about how they treat Ivan Tony and his gambling addiction. There was absolutely no compassion there for some of the things that they are partly responsible for, but their advertising has encourages people to do it and players are people as well. I know people have tried to keep them at higher standards, but they're just normal people doing their jobs for a lot of money. And yeah, I think it's just hip- hypocrisy. But I'm interested to see which sponsor... What, what do you think we get? Let's make a wild prediction. What sponsor yeah, do you think we're going to get? Man, I, I'm, I'm thinking it's going to be more in the... I don't think it's going to be in like the international era, like, you know, like Qatar or something like that. I think there was talk... I think we just signed a contract with um, was it Oman Air to do a lot of our flights in and out. I'm thinking it's going to be some sort of American company just because of the ties of the of uh, Bowley and all that stuff. But I hope it – I really don't know, to be honest with you. I've got a wild guess. What's your guess? Durex. Ah, yeah. I think they're going to go real, 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 real big on this one. <laughs> Left field. You know who, you know who really needs a, a, a sponsor right now is Budweiser. <laughs> you want all the stuff happening in the U.S. Yes. Go Bud Light. Bud Light sponsored. Interestingly enough, they, they're not allowed, alcohol's not allowed to be sponsored anymore. That's true, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, Durex or Trojan, I think. <laughs> Cheesecake I think. Factory is my, <laughs> is my choice. Yeah, their menu, I think I put on the Slack, their menu to Cheesecake Factory reads like the Chelsea squad of last year. You know, it's like you can get either Italian food, <laughs> Cajun food, <laughs> or Chinese food at the Cheesecake Factory. And none of it is very good. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
Uh, no, I'm, I'm looking forward to the sponsorship. I just hope it's not going to be some random .com, you know, or, or three mobile or Wild something fan. like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would like to see Trivago come on as, as our main kit yeah. sponsor. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah, yeah that, that'd be tri- good. Pretty be, kits are really nice. They stuck with us through the bad exactly. times of the, of the sanctions. So. Yeah. Okay, so we've got a new segment that we have decided to do. So as I mentioned in our previous episodes, these summer episodes, while we don't have any games, we wanted to inspire some different conversations between us about Chelsea's history and future. But this one's going back into the past. So what we thought we would do is make both of us make our Chelsea worst 11s. And the criteria for this can be performance, but also just general hatred. Yeah, and worse, and also in a personal aspect, like you just didn't care for type, you know, deal and stuff. So I think I would I would say that the utilizing the word worse can be construed in so many different. Yeah, many ways. Di- it can mean many different things. Yeah, because I don't really hate some of these guys. I just thought they were just terrible. But then there's some I really do hate <laughs> that haven't been so bad for Chelsea. So it's it's like you know. Yeah, I don't hate that many of our old players. <laughs> so it was like it was I was thinking about performance and just general likability. Yeah. Um. And I'm, I've made a big call not to include any of our outgoings of this summer. Okay. It's all, it's all more in the past. So there's some pretty deep cuts of mine. So I'd be interested to see if we, if we come out with a, a similar, similar 11s. So goalkeeper. Yeah. I'm, I'm, Who's I'm, your number one? <laughs> my number one is Kepa. You know, I know, uh, I know I was actually defending Kepa a lot on this podcast before, but if you take a look at how much he cost, 80 million pounds or 80 million euros, and then... You know, I think a lot of it was because of the way Courtois left us, and we were just needed a first-rate goalkeeper at that time, and we spent so much money on him. He's he's actually on pretty high wages too, uh, for Chelsea so currently. We can't get rid of him. Yeah, we can't get rid of him, and and has just been played with ineptitude with balls outside the box, a lot of mental issues. You know, I think he has a physical ability to be a good goalkeeper, maybe not the height, but there were the spans when he was playing under Lampard in his first season that it was just terrible. It was terrible. Literally, any time the game was, you know, we, we had a game in hand against any team, they, we, they always threatened to score against Cup outside the box. And it happened in the FA Cup final when we lost to Leicester and that, you know, great goal by them. And, and I just think that he was a bad goalkeeper in our pivotal games and cost us a lot of points. Yeah. It was a tough one for me because I despised Thibaut Courtois so much because how he left but I feel that you have to give some allowance for him being a vital part of two Premier League winning teams and winning various other trophies as well. And I've had many disagreements with, in particular our local uh, Nashville Chelsea group about Kepa. He is my number one as well on this. I've been a Chelsea fan for a very, very long time. Even when we were really shit, he is the worst number one goalkeeper we've ever had. I'm not exaggerating. If you go back into the 90s, we had competent goalkeepers who I viewed as actually better than competent. We had So if you're going back to the late 90s, you had like Ed De Hoy, who used to be the Dutch number one goalkeeper when they got were a very, very good team before Edwin van der Sar. You had Carlo Cudicini, who was excellent in a, a team that never really hit that many heights, but he was smaller than Kepa and he was a better goal uh, stopper than Kepa is. Kepa, I'm afraid is just an average, average goalkeeper who does good things when he's busy. But as we talked about last time, the best goalkeepers do not do things. The best goalkeepers can perform when they have nothing to do. And I don't think any other Premier League team would take him. 
right now. And I think he's the worst number one goalkeeper Chelsea have ever had. I'm not including reserves because we've had some absolutely fucking atrocious yeah, Marco goalkeeper. Yeah. <laughs> Ross Turnbull. <coughs> we've had Eduardo. Do you remember? Yeah. Hilario. Yeah. yeah, we had some we had some absolute absolute I, I would I would have probably taken Begovic in his prime over Kepa currently, you know. I yeah, think Begovic too. did really well. It was a bad season when Thibaut got hurt, but I think he stepped in pretty, you know, pretty well during the injury time. Okay. So, who is your right back? Um, just for recency, I think that I had a lot of, I, I, you know, I thought he was a panic buy as well, and it was Zapacosta. Okay. Um, he was a panic buy. He had that one banger of a goal against Carabag. <laughs> it was not intentional. <laughs> it was not intentional. It was a cross in, and then basically just withered on the bench and was never, <laughs> never found. And, and we, in his inability to sort of get on the pitch, did help out a lot of our academy players being able to step up, especially Reese James and stuff like that. But mine was Zapacosta. Just recency bias, I think. Yeah, I think. Yeah, that's a good one. I think that was the infamous, terrible 2017-2018 summer transfer. Which I have a lot of those on my yeah, team. Yeah. <laughs> for me, I'm going for a bit of a deeper cut. Uh, another Dutch, we talk about the Dutch, a right back, and he was signed in the 2006-2007 season, Khalid Boularouz. I don't know if you remember him. For some insane reason, they gave him the number nine shirt, and he was a right back or a centre back, and he was appalling just absolutely appalling. And they, I think they nicknamed him, it's very similar to Lissandro Martinez for um, Manchester United, they nicknamed him the Butcher because he was very aggressive. And Mourinho just absolutely hated him. And I remember when we played at White Hart Lane uh, that season, we lost, which is very, very rare in that period of time. And uh, <laughs> Mourinho brought him on as a substitute and then 30 minutes later subbed him off because he was playing so badly and he was just... There was just a period of time where he just... I think that was the last we saw of him. So that was when Mourinho was really, really ruthless and just decided, I'm going to... not. He's never going to play for us again. And we spent like 15 million quid on him as well. And it was just... Ugh, disaster. Okay, so... Centre-backs. Who are your centre-backs? Winston Bogard. I mean, this guy has pillaged Chelsea in terms of funds and how much money we paid him for the amount of time he's been on, he was on the squad. And just... Had a chance to go to other clubs but didn't want to. He just wanted to stop and collect a paycheck. Uh, only played 11 games in four seasons. Uh, was not good during those plays. He made 40,000 pounds a week. And that was like early on, right, in the early 2000s. That's a lot of money. And just sat there and collected a paycheck and did nothing. Awful. And further to that story as well, I don't know if anyone knows this. So he signed a three-year deal at Chelsea. So for two more years after that, he would fly from Amsterdam every day to go to Cobham for training and then fly back because he knew that he just wasn't going to play. So he used to do that every day. Also, his carbon footprint. What a bastard. What a bastard. Do exactly, terrible, right? Terrible things for the environment. He wasn't flying Ryanair. Oh, we know that. That was a disaster, that was. <laughs> so my first one, again, it's, an, it's, it's going back a, a little bit of time. Tal Benaim. So after, it was Mourinho's last season in his first spell when Abramovich really didn't... It was after we signed Shevchenko and Mourinho was being a bit of a dick and throwing his toys out of the pram. And Tal Benayim was this Israeli centre-back who was released by Bolton that summer. And that was Mourinho's centre-back pairing. He brought him in for t to replace Terry when he was injured. Good God, he was atrocious. He was atrocious and, yeah, just terrible, terrible footballer. Like in that period of time where we had good footballers and it was just that was the year Tal Banahim was on the bench for the Champions League final against Manchester yeah. United yeah wow 
My Who's other it? center back is um, Papi Jilabuji. Uh, <laughs> Josie didn't want him. He didn't want him at all. It was a Roman buy. And uh, we tried to get stones, I think, around the same time, and we couldn't get stones. And this happened to be the guy that we bought. And he only played one minute, one minute at Chelsea. And he fucked up to Sutherland, and I don't know what happened to him afterwards. Do you know what's mad about that, though? We made a profit on him. <laughs> it's true. That is true. That is true. 30 minutes, and we still made money yeah. off him. Uh, but that, that, that was, that was, that's my other center back pair. Yeah, where is he now? I have that's no idea. Really no question. idea. I just know he was at Sutherland, and then from there, I have no idea. The only reason I know that is because I watched that Sutherland until I died. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. God. Real pits a few years ago. That's right. My other centre-back is a bit of a controversial choice. We're talking about hatred here. Because it kind of goes against my Kepa rule about um, and Courtois. William Gallas. Oh. It's William Gallas. William Gallas was an outstanding defender for Chelsea. Was a vital part of our two, first two Premier League winning teams. But then threw his toys out of the pram and decided that he wanted to go to Arsenal. Who does that remind you of? Yeah. Um, and some good things came of that. We got Ashley Cole in the deal to get to get rid of him. But just his attitude, he threatened to score an own goal in an FA Cup semi-final if they didn't let him go. And just what a terrible person. And I find it very interesting actually now he gets invited back to play for Chelsea. Yeah. Legends. And I'm just, I don't want him near the club. Get like, no, he's not even apologised for any of it. And like, People don't, a lot of Chelsea fans do not forget, he gets some rough treatment of those legend games, and justifiably so. Left back. Who's your left back? Uh, Baba Rahman. Yeah, mine too. Yeah, I mean, what? We, we signed for Chelsea, five year deal. Uh, he's been loaned out to the abyss. <laughs> he was finally let go today. Yeah. Finally let yeah. go today. How much did we spend on him? Uh, I'm thinking it was around 14 million initially, almost a 22 million pounds, I think, is what it was. Um, at least got to spend some time in Mallorca. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, what did we? What are we doing? Marine? He, he he just signed with was it Payok? I think. Yeah, yeah, other, in yeah. Greece. Yeah. yeah, in Greece. This is the thing, okay. And I think there's some real recency bias that Chelsea fans have got about the current ownership. Yes, we've made some mistakes in our first year. You could attribute that to whatever. But Mourinho Gravaskaya, who oversaw this these transfer about a five year period of transfers, has made some absolutely awful decisions that has hurt the club long term, and that's nothing to do with Bowley and the Clear Lake Capital. They have f- had to fix some of this mess, and they're doing so in the best way that they can. Baba Rahman is the absolute symptom of that problem, as amongst others who we'll talk about, no doubt, because I'm guaranteeing you at least one of them's on your list, <laughs> yeah, especially in the midfield. Yeah, yeah. So. I've got three-man midfield. I do have a three-man midfield as well. Do you want to just okay. name them? So I think I'm going to name two who I think are on both of our lists. Yeah. Danny Drinkwater. Absolutely. And Timioi Bakayoko. Absolutely. Yeah. Never gives a ball away. 40 million for Monaco. I remember watching his first game when he started against, I think it was against Tottenham at Wembley, right? I think Tottenham had moved to Wembley when they were getting White Hart Lane demolished in the new Hotspur Stadium. And he actually looked pretty good in that game. And it was also, coincidentally, Alvaro Morata's <laughs> first game starting for Chelsea as well. And I was like, okay, you know, Bakayoko looks pretty good. And he played against that, in the game against Atletico Madrid um, in, in Madrid, where we won it in the last second. I thought he looked pretty good that game. And I was like, okay, we got a really good defensive midfielder. Because he came in to step in for 
uh, Matic. Yeah. Matic had left to go to Man U. He was supposed to be that pivotal defensive midfielder that let N'Golo Kante do his whole thing. And then he just went down. Like, he was just awful, awful. It was like you flip a coin. Heads, you get the good Bakayoko. Tails, you get the shitty Bakayoko. And ended up being on tails for most of the season. And then he just went, to, went on the lone army and just was loaned out every single um, season after that. What a disaster. I think the way he played in that Monaco team before the year before we signed him, you think of the, the four big names that came yeah, out of that Yeah, Mbappe, him, Bernardo Silva, Bernardo Silva yeah. Fabinho, yeah. and we got back in. Yeah, <laughs> and he was like, he was Champions League Player of the Month for one of the, yeah. in one of the, one of the during the season, and he was like, wow, I got so excited for his signing, although he had got injured, but, you know, like, he looked pretty good, and then just was terrible, terrible. But, but I have to say, Danny Drinkwater was worse. Oh, absolutely. I th- I think... He's the worst Chelsea signing ever. Yeah. I think. For the money. I think for the money. I think there's some other candidates who I think we might talk about as well. But in terms of contributions and just sucking the life out of the club, just he played well for Leicester because N'Golo Kante was next to him. And I think there was a lot of players who were like that, but probably don't get spent 40 million quid on them. And what a disaster. I had thought that maybe we should have just rebranded him as Danilo Abebeagua and be like, this is our new Spanish prospect from Cobham. <laughs> Anybody want to buy him? Arsenal. That's a great guy. But he was on 150000 yeah. a week. Yeah. And I think he played about 10 games. No, and then he had the disastrous loan spell to, I think it was Aston Villa, that we thought, okay, maybe they can turn up some of his wages, and he was just terrible coming to the game for I think he got into a couple of fights in the yeah. training ground as well. Just... Yeah. What blows my mind is that someone who's got that cavalier with their career as well is like, okay, maybe we've overspent on you, but you clearly are talented. Like, he got selected for England. Just what did you do to your career? Okay, so the third one. Who's your third? Adrian Mutu. Okay. Yeah. I think I think in the beginning he was fine. He had a fir- you know the first season was okay, but then he had the squabbles with Josie and then had that whole injury controversy going to the World Cup qualifying match. And then... Did cocaine and got a little excited. Drug test. Yeah, and I think he, yeah, and then just fucked off after that. But I think he's the other person. Yeah, I think he's terrible. My one is a very deep cut. A guy called Enrique De Lucas. Yeah. I... So, to, for context on this one, this is 2002, 2003 season, which Chelsea qualified for the Champions League that year, but we were almost bankrupt. This was the season before Abramovich bought us, but it was real high stakes. And we had one, we got one transfer in that summer window on from Spain at Kike de Lucas. And I've got this really interesting memory of being in Spain on the, one of the Spanish islands with my family, uh, with my two brothers and my, my parents. And Chelsea played Leeds and de Lucas was one on one with the goalkeeper and just like absolutely fucked it, like completely fucked it and just dragged the ball wide and my elder brother just absolutely lost it <laughs> just absolutely lost it i think he threw a pint glass on the on the floor he was so angry and i was just i can't tell you how bad this guy was and like that summer they tried selling us that he was like the new freddie lundberg who arrived late in the box <laughs> but god he was awful but his shitness inspired lampard to become one of the best midfielders we've ever had that season so that's a good one Three up front, I've gone for three strikers. I think I've gone for three strikers also. Okay, so who are your, who are your three? <laughs> uh, Lukaku. Yep. Morata. Yep. And Shevchenko. Oh, yeah. interesting. We've deviated on that one. Yeah. So, 
I mean, we talked about Lukaku enough. Yeah. What a, what a scumbag. And I think for me, you know, his initial leaving was fine, whatever. He left, he wanted to get some playing time. That's okay. Came back, kissed the badge, had the two goals against Villa last year in the beginning. Like, okay, we, we got ourselves a striker. Then the motherfucker got dropped and decided to go on and have this ridiculous interview. Like, you know, what are you thinking? Like, you were injured. That's why you weren't getting played. You know, and just just because you didn't start one game, decided to bring a film crew and be like, hey, let's talk about why I, I want to go back to Inter Milan in the middle of a season. In the middle of a season. Who does that? You know what? I've, I don't believe in conspiracy theories very often, but I read one that was very interesting that this whole inter-selling Lukaku to Chelsea was like this big ploy to get a, lo- a load of money in when he had absolutely no intention to leave and no intention to ever be there longer than a year. So essentially we paid like £97 million for a loan deal because he he never wanted to join us again. I don't understand what's happened. Like, I, I, don't, I don't believe the narrative that he got dropped once and that was it. I think... Tuchel probably contributed to some degree because his tactics with attackers was yeah. bad, but I don't think he ever wanted to leave Inter. He was clearly excelling there, and the Italian league is shit, and he, <laughs> he shines. Yeah, I mean, um, he's living in Italy. He's 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 living in Milan. It's a great city. He can have all the pizza and pasta he wants. He can live the American, or sorry, the Italian dream. And, yeah. And I, I just thought that it was a mistake signing him yeah. for that what huge disaster. Fee. That's Marina's big sign-off, yeah. that one. Yeah, and finally, um, it looks like we might be able to get rid of him. And so. then Alvaro Morata, I think, um, interesting. I think for him, it was a difficult situation for him, right? Because Diego Costa had just left the club or was asked to leave the club from Antonio Conte, and so Morata was supposed to be that new number nine signing that was going to take the place of Diego. But Diego was a different creature. Yeah, like he is one of the few strikers that came from La Liga and did well in the Premier League. You know, he was rough. He was an asshole. He was a bastard on the pitch. And that's what you need in the Premier League to succeed. Yeah. Alvaro Morata was everything opposite of that. He was more of that finesse player. He was more of that kind player. And he was not that rigid asshole that you needed in, in the Premier League on the pitch. And I remember the first, I think he had scored the two goals in Stoke. And then Henri was like, oh, this is a great striker. I got so, I was listening to Henri's sort of analysis of Morata. I was like, man, this is going to be great. He's going to be good. Remember the first game he played when he started when he played against um, against Spurs and he missed that header yeah. in the beginning of the first half. Like pathetic, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, <laughs> and then I was like, this is not going to look good. Then he had flashes of brilliance. I remember watching the game with one of my Man U friends and it was at the bridge and, and I think is one of the... an incredible header. Yeah, Aspilicueta. I think his link-up with Aspilicueta that year was actually pretty good. I think they were they, he had so many link-ups for me goals. That was like an incredible header, but then fell off. Yeah, I he's in my 11 for disappointment. I think I don't have anything personally wrong with him. I think I was in that camp. I was so excited when we signed him because I'd watched him and I thought to myself, technically, I was like, I've never seen Chelsea have technically a better striker. So Drogba and Costa were horses in terms of like being very physical and being up front. Morata, when he was on the ball, was electric with his pace, really accomplished footballer. And you still see that now occasionally, like... I remember in the Euro semi-final or two years ago when he scored against Italy, it was an unbelievable piece of technique to score that goal. And I just his head was his head has never been right, and 
I, I yeah, I was just disappointed because it was a huge outlay of money and like obviously big shoes to fill. But I think he had the skill level to do it, but yeah. he's just just never there. The good thing about him is that we did recover a lot of the fee. And I th- you know, with Marina selling him back um, to Atletico, so I think that kind of helped yeah, out yeah. and sort of alleviated some of that. So talk to issue. me about Shevchenko. So I think he was a product of just a wrong time buy. You know, I think he was at the later stages of his career. Kuda Bali. <laughs> yeah, and so I think that's the issue with him. Had he come to the club four or five years earlier, I think he would have been a successful striker. I don't think Josie wanted him. I think he was a Roman buy. Yeah. But I just think it was a product of just coming to the club late, just like Fernando Torres, mm-hmm. right? He was a product of, of, of a player, a, a great striker that just came to Chelsea one or two years late, and I think that's, that's, that's what the signing was. Yeah, it was a disappointment because he used to be, he was the world's best striker yeah. by very similar, and it was, he was... Unbelievable. And it was good. not a bad fee. Well, it was pretty high at that time, but it wasn't an enormous fee, you know, that and we when we purchased him, but just I don't know, I think he scored what, um nine goals, you know, in uh, forty eight appearances for Chelsea. Yeah, it's not good, is it? So my last striker is again a deeper cut, it's Chris Sutton. So under Viali, we uh spent ten million pounds on Chris Sutton, who was honestly one of the best strikers in England at that time. He played with Shearer at Blackburn when Shearer was at his pomp. Played in the England team, scored a lot of goals wherever he went apart from us. He was, I think he was the first number nine curse that we had actually. Scored one goal all season. It was when we beat Man United 5-0, which was amazing. So pick your moments, obviously. But Chelsea finished third the year before. And like when we signed him, I remember being very young at the time. But everyone was like, this could actually push Chelsea to become Premier League champions. And he just didn't work. He was just awful. And we got rid of him a year later. Thankfully, it meant that we got Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank afterwards. But yeah, he was a disaster. Yeah, a real disaster. That's where the number nine curse started, by the way. So if anyone wants to go back and look at the history of that, that's where it begun. And God, he was atrocious. (laughs) He was atrocious. Well, that brings us to the end of our episode of Chelsea Against the World. Again, thank you so much for listening to us each and every single week. If you can, please follow us on all of our social media on, we are on Twitter and Instagram, CATW Podcast at CATW Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And we also are on threads now at CATW Podcast. And you can email us if you have any questions, comments, or any suggestions for any future podcast material. That's our email is podcastcatw at gmail.com. Podcastcatw at gmail.com. And please do give us a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to us on. We really want to get to more people as as much as possible. And uh, next week, we've got some exciting stuff going on. We're actually going to be making the trip to North Carolina for Chelsea's preseason friendly against Wrexham. So maybe we'll see Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney there, maybe. Um, But yeah, we'll be taking some footage of that whole uh, couple of days and we'll have some content for you from there. But as ever, thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Keep the faith and see you soon.